Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. We're back with the new season of Club Book, and we'll be hosting nine exciting events from February to May 2018 all around the Twin Cities metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Peter Guy at Anoka County Library, Rum River. Minnesota native Peter Guy is the author behind three best-selling novels set around the fictional, yet authentic, North Shore town of Gunflint. The Star Tribune praised his 2010 debut, Safe from the Sea, as a rich, satisfying novel about family members who make amends after a lifetime of estrangement. Captivating family dynamics are a through line in Guy's work. His sophomore novel, The Lighthouse Road, centers around mother and son Norwegian immigrants as they contend with a hardscrabble lifestyle and impossible choices. Unsurprisingly, both titles won Guy the Northeastern Minnesota Book Award. His latest, Wintering, may be the most compelling yet. Elderly, demented gunflit patriarch Harry Ide vanishes mysteriously in the night, leaving behind a grown son scared by vivid memories of the last time his father went on the lamb. Booklist lauds Wintering, noting that this relatively small and enclosed community of gunflint is Guy's perfect laboratory for exploring human nature. Among other honors, it won Guy the 2017 Minnesota Book Award for Novel and Short Story. Thank you, uh, and thank you all for coming. Um, my uncle, I think, uh, grew up in Anoka, so whenever I come out here, yeah. <clears throat> Bob Swenson, you'd never guess a guy with a name like that grew up in Anoka. <laughs> Um, so every time I come out here, I feel like I'm coming home in some, some small way. Thank you all for coming. Um, I have to keep it clean tonight because my old man has made the drive from downtown Minneapolis to join us. So the usual shenanigans, um, well, okay, okay. Um, I thought what I would do tonight uh, is talk a little bit about um, this fictional family that I've created now over the course of two and a half novels, The Eyed Family, and where they came from and what they've meant to me, and read um, a little bit from Wintering, but also read a little bit from uh, the book that I'm working on now, which is another sequel to, uh, to Wintering and to The Lighthouse Road. Um, and then when I'm done with that, we can have a conversation, I hope. Um, you've all come a long way, um, presumably, or some of you anyway, um, and I have, and I would love to have a conversation with you. So. Um, 
In 2010, when my first book was coming out, and I was in the process of thinking about what I should write next, I didn't know much about that except that I did not want to spend 10 years working on it as I had on my first book. Uh, so one of the things that I did to uh, sort of nip that prospect in the bud was actually come up with a plan, which I had none for the, for the first book, for Save from the Sea. And I spent a lot of time imagining the life of this young woman who was going to come from Norway and settle in a fictional town on the North Shore and live her quiet life among the lumberjacks and fishermen um, at the turn of the last century. And I was pretty content with this storyline that I had for her and I was excited about telling her story and had outlined it and was feeling pretty good and like I could maybe do this in a year or something. Well, I started writing her story and at the end of the first chapter, uh, which remains the first chapter of The Lighthouse Road, she gives birth to a son. His name is Ode. And as soon as that child was born on the page, I started thinking, well, he's going to have a life too and it doesn't seem very fair to give birth to him or, you know, figuratively give birth to him and not tell his story. Um, so I started thinking about a life that he might have. And that life eventually led to children of his own, uh, and so on and so forth. So about a month or two into writing this book that I thought was going to take 8 or 10 or 12 months, I had a family tree that looks something like this now. <laughs> now you might not be able to see that, but anyway, it's seven generations of this family. And I didn't know what to do with it. I thought, if I write the story of all of these people, that looks an awful lot like 10 years. And that was my, uh, exactly what I didn't want to have happen. So I thought about it quite a bit and decided that what I would do instead of telling it all at once was tell the lives of this family over the course of a series of books. The first of those was The Lighthouse Road, and that one tells the story of a young woman who comes from Norway, the original character. Her name is Thea. I can consult my notes if I forget any of their names. <laughs> and uh, her son, Ode, um, who is born uh, and soon orphaned, I feel like I can tell you these things because that book is now seven years old. So if you haven't read it, it's not my fault. <laughs> uh, and uh, he makes a living uh, fishing in Lake Superior. He builds his own boat uh, and lives a kind of lonely life and eventually has a son of his own. And that son became Harry-eyed, who's one of the main characters, one of the three main characters of Wintering. In this book, um, which came out a couple years ago now. Um, Harry and his son Gus, there's going to be a lot of names. I'm going to try to do this as succinctly as I can. Harry and Gus, Gus being just out of high school, decide that they're going to go and spend a winter in what is now the Boundary Waters, uh, but in 1963 was just in the process of becoming the Boundary Waters. And Harry, the father, pitches this idea as just a sort of adventure that they can have, uh, a chance to go out and you know, spend a little time together before uh, Gus is, you know, hurried off into the rest of the world. Of course, there are a few more, I guess, ominous reasons for his going, but he doesn't tell Gus about them. Fast forward to several years later, 30-some years later, and Harry, the father, has wandered off again. Now he's an old man. He's suffering from dementia, and he's gone and disappeared. It doesn't do spoil too much to tell you that because you learn that in the first chapter of the book. 
And Gus is left to wonder what it's all meant. What did that season in the borderlands mean? What has his father kept from him? What doesn't he know about this man who was so um, important to him and who taught him so much? And so in the interest of figuring some of that out, Gus talks to uh, Barrett Lavig, who is one of my favorite characters, uh, and is a woman who, among other things, spent many years as uh, Harry's partner after Harry uh, and his marriage um, come apart. And together they spend a winter telling each other stories. Gus' stories about what happened that season in the wilderness, and Barrett's stories about his family that Gus couldn't have otherwise known. And as I was writing this book, I didn't know it at the time, uh, not until maybe halfway through it, but it started to occur to me that one of the things that was happening is that the theme of the stories that we tell each other and the way that those stories end up making meaning in our life became prominent, so prominent in fact that it sort of became to my way of thinking at least, the main point of the story altogether. And so I got to the end of the book and I knew that there was one story that Barrett hadn't told Gus um, that she knew she had to. And so I'm gonna tell you that story now. It's the last chapter in the book, uh, or part of it anyway. And it doesn't spoil much to read it because it's almost like epilogue is prologue or prologue is epilogue, I'm not sure which one. But it's a story that um, Barrett has written down for Gus. Um, and it takes place in 1937. Uh, and let me think. I think the only other thing you need to know is that there's a woman named Rebecca in this scene who was a very prominent character in The Lighthouse Road, but who now is a sort of mad woman living in the attic. So this is 1937. It happened on a morning in February an easterly wind blowing cold across the lake. The sun rose over low clouds. Snow was in the offing from the east as it had come overnight and would again that morning, blowing up off the lake and over the breakwater. But just then, the sky above was blue and unbitter, and your father and his father, Ode, hauled their toboggan out from the cove. I cocked my ear to the ceiling above and listened for the sound of Rebecca's arthritic feet crossing the floor. I sorted the mail, keeping one eye on your father as he augured holes a quarter mile offshore. I watched them sit on the upturned buckets and drop their lines in the water as I slid letters into boxes and wondered why, after nearly a month here in Gumflint, I'd never seen that boy, your father, anywhere but out on the ice. At nine o'clock, I went upstairs and made tea for Rebecca, as I did each morning. She stood, as she nearly always did, at the window her fingertips touching the glass, her head down and her eyes fixed on the lake. She turned when she heard me. Oh, she said. It was the first thing I had heard from her in weeks. Maybe it was meant as thanks. At 10 o'clock, I know this surely because I can still hear the soft 10 gongs of the grandfather clock. It started happening. And though I saw it with my own eyes, I've always remembered it through your father's. First, the crack from nowhere in like gunshot, which it might as well have been. Folks in town heard it carried in by the wind. I heard it even inside the apothecary. Your father was hurled onto the land fast ice, his father in the opposite direction. Ode landed on his gut, 
looked up and saw the ice breaking before him as though exploded from beneath. He clambered to his knees just in time to duck a swell. After wiping the water from his face, he turned back to Harry. Already the ice stood jagged between them, like a stone fence or a range of mountains in miniature. Ode surveyed the lake as it was opening up all around him, ice flows colliding and cleaving with an urgency he could not believe. In all his years, he'd never seen anything remotely like it. Neither had your father, of course. At that age, he hadn't seen much that Ode had not seen right alongside him. On one great swell, and then another, the block of ice that Ode was on floated out toward the open water that 30 seconds before had been frozen solid. When a third wave broke, his ice block was halved, and he had to scramble to stay out of the water. He held his balance and glanced down at his feet, one of his boots now missing. On a still intact sheet of ice, water spewed through the fishing hole he had augured just a couple hours earlier. Your father gazed up at the sky above his father and, and saw clouds dashing across the dull blue as fast as the lake ice was coming apart. He watched his father fall to his knees and then stand again to look back at him. Harry had a rope in his hand and was throwing it hopelessly into the wind. He was bawling, but his father never could have heard him. Ode was floored once more and once more stood. He watched your father hurrying toward, show, toward shore. The flow yawed again and Ode was dropped a final time. He removed his mittens and clawed at the ice until his fingers bled, but there was nothing to seize hold of. The water was growing even bigger and some cruel, ungodly force was pushing him farther out even as all the powers of nature ought to have been bringing him in. The townsfolk were quick to act. Nils Bargard and two of his sons pushed their skiff across the harbor ice and met Harry before he made the breakwater. By the time they were in open water, Mr. Veyu was lowering the town tender from its launch. Two other boats were searching before I took an accounting of all that was happening. Once tallied, I went upstairs to give Rebecca the news. But she hadn't budged from the window except to raise her chin. I went to stand beside her. If she noticed me, there was no sign of it. We watched as the boats plied the water, searching. I saw your father brace himself in the bow of the Bargard boat. Even from so far away, I could see his frantic eyes. Or perhaps I was only imagining them. He searched and hollered and cursed God. There was much desperate searching that day. Only the old men stayed ashore, as did the Oz clan, who leaned against the cable on the breakwater to watch as the boats crisscrossed open water and the snow began in earnest. They kept cruising for hours until, one at a time, they came in. By noon, the lake mellowing, the snow falling harder, the only vessel left on the water was the one that had gone out first. Nils steered the outboard, his sons praying and searching from either side of the boat. And your father? Harry stood on the forward thwart, whispering, Papa, Papa, Papa. It was dark when those four pushed the Bargard skiff back across the harbor ice. I was locking the front door when I saw them coming. They put the boat ashore and walked up the lighthouse road and came straight to me. Mr. Bargard in front, then your father flanked by the two boys. 
The younger carried a single boot. I unlocked and opened the door and stepped aside as they walked in. Mr. Bargard said, not a word, only brushed some snow from your father's coat and held his shoulders for a long moment, stunned silent by his downturned eyes. Then they turned to go. The younger boy left the boot on the floor next to your father. This is when I first met him. Your father was 16 years old, so was I. He looked up at me after I returned from closing the door. Would it be too much, he said, to ask for a cup of coffee? I nodded and went up to the kitchen on the third floor. Rebecca was no longer at the window. I don't know where she was just then. I put the water on. I diced a potato and put it in a frying pan with a spoonful of bacon fat from a jar I kept in the icebox. I made a roast beef sandwich and cut a pickle in half and waited for the water to boil. When it did, I poured it over the grounds and stirred the potato until it was done frying. I sprinkled salt and pepper over the skillet, then poured a cup of coffee full and set it on the tray with the sandwich and pickle and scooped the potato onto the plate and carried it downstairs. All that time, I'd been crying for the boy I now thought of as an orphan waiting for his coffee downstairs. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I saw Rebecca standing off to the side. I couldn't tell if your father had noticed her. She followed me as I crossed the floor and placed the tray on the window seat. I made you something to eat, I said, wiping my tears with a handkerchief I kept tucked in my dress sleeve. Your father looked up at the tray of food and picked up the mug and took a sip of it and then unfolded the napkin and tucked it into his shirt collar. Thank you, he said. I turned to watch as Rebecca stepped forward, her chin upheld. Now your father looked at her. She nudged me aside and bent down to lift the wet boot. She stared at it for a long time and then said to him, who are you? The snow had melted off your father's coat and pooled on the bench and floor beneath him. Who are you? Rebecca asked again. This time when your father didn't answer, she turned to me and said, see to it this mess is cleaned up before you retire for the evening and she walked back to the staircase and went up. This town has always been good at having secrets and terrible at keeping them. As I sat behind the counter watching your father finish the last potatoes, I realized I'd been wrong while I stood over the stove just half an hour before. He was no orphan. He was eating supper in his mother's parlor. How easily lies pass as truth. How easily we overlook what is obvious and plain to see. What I didn't fail to see that evening, what has been the one sure thing in my long life, was that your father's grief in that hour, though I felt it as surely as if it were my own, would not be the saddest part of this day, not for me. I watched him wipe his mouth with the napkin, lay it on the tray, and lower his head. I crossed the room again and gathered the tray and brought it up to the kitchen. Rebecca was back at the window, looking out into the starless, moonless night. What did she see in that darkness? Owed, no doubt, but what else? Did she see her son crossing under the streetlights? Did she see him ducking into the alleyway past the Traveler's Hotel? That's surely what he did, your father, for when I went back downstairs, he was gone. Only the puddle of melted snow remained. Here's what I knew right then. As long as your father was alive and still living here, I would be too. 
And however long it might be, I would wait. I would wait for him as Rebecca had. The only difference was that I would not go crazy while doing it. And I didn't. I was also right about that. These stories that we live and die by, I've learned this much about them. They never do begin, and they certainly never end. They live on in the minds of old ladies and locked in antique safes and portraits on a wall and a renovated boat sitting on a lawn. Somewhere deep in the Quetico, there's one pile of ash and another of bones. They too are just stories. Why have we told them, you to me and now me to you? We've told them because we need proof of love and that's what they are. More than anything, they are exactly that. So, thank you. So that's, that's the end of The Lighthouse Road, and that, as I said, that's a story that Barrett tells uh, Gus, or writes for Gus in my imagination anyway, as a way of sort of trying to help him understand who his father was. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that conversation about how stories affect our lives has become, well, for all sorts of reasons, some obvious and some maybe not, sort of the, the thing that I'm most concerned about in my own life. And I've been thinking a lot lately about what it's been like to spend now almost 10 years with this family as though they were a group of close friends or even relatives, people that I love and people that I care about and worry about, um, and what it's going to be like to set them aside and hopefully move on to other stories. And it's a bit perplexing, and it's, a, it's just such a strange thing to think that you know, these, these made-up people, who I often, in fact, think of before I think of my own children in the morning, <laughs> what it's going to be like to live without them, and, and what has been the purpose or the function of me telling all of these stories about them, all these things that I've just made up. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that, that part of the project, such as it is, part of the reason that I've written these books is because I just don't know enough about myself or enough about the love that I feel for my children or my father or my siblings or the other people that I love to make sense of it on my own. So I've used these characters. Um, to say I've used them makes me sound cheap, but I've, I've, I've worked with these characters and invented them as a way of understanding that. And one of the things that keeps happening, no matter how much time I invest in my emotions for them, no matter how much time I invest in understanding them, is that for all I might come to know about them, I still can't ever quite figure out how these stories work, how they work together not just the stories that I'm writing, but all the stories and all the books in the library. And I love it. I love being mystified by that. And I continue to pursue you know, what, what it might be about, what it might be all adding up to. And in my new book, it's a book called Northernmost, which I'm um, you know, working hard on and trying, <laughs> trying very hard to finish. That same, that same um, topic, I guess, the stories of our lives has, has reared its head and has become one of the central themes of the book. I'm going to read just a few pages from it, and I've annotated them so it's not quite the whole beginning. But it's the story, again, I will consult my notes, of Gus's daughter, Greta, 
who in February of 2018, this could be happening tonight, I guess, it's still February, um, is up in Gunflint with her daughter Liv, where she has just, um, where, they're, where they're spending the night, they're about to return home to Minneapolis. Um, but she's, she, Greta herself is flummoxed by these, these stories as well, so much so that she's trying to write one about it all. Um, and there's nothing really else to say about this except that it's from a book called Northernmost. And when I finish with this, then we can have a conversation together. So February 2018. Each night, she walked the cove shoreline out to the point. She'd leave the lights on in the front window and from across the water, try to believe she could live there in the warmth and quiet of that glow from the fish house. So many nights from the last year, the hardest year of her life, after working all day on the house or at her desk, she'd come out here to take comfort in the surging waves. My, how they kept coming. But for weeks, the cove and even the lake out beyond the point had been frozen. The cold of this nice night would make the ice stronger. The snow would make it softer. Her grandmother had once painted the fish house from this vantage back in the 1940s when she was first a bride and still in love with the idea of living here with her young husband. That painting, along with five others, hung in the Historical Society on the Lighthouse Road. It was titled Fish House and Snow Squall, and from where she stood now, Greta could see it as she imagined her grandmother might have, even if she stood now in a blizzard and not a squall. You're doing it again, Mom, Liv said. Her voice pinched on the wind. Greta stepped closer to her. Doing what, love? Talking out loud. I was thinking about Grandma. Together they looked back across the cove, the wind biting their faces. Usually the radiance from town a half mile across the isthmus came up over the trees, but tonight the snow blotted even that. The only thing alight in any direction was the window of the fish house. Roald, Liv hollered as the dog chased a whirl of snow blown up off the ice. Come here, boy. He's okay, Greta said. The snow's got him excited is all. Now they watched him bound off. Liv was crazy about him, a giant mutt that looked as much like a bear as a dog. At two years old, he weighed 130 pounds. His paws were as big as Liv's feet. The wind is so quiet without the water, Liv said. Greta had heard that before. Who'd said it? Her mother? Father? It couldn't have been Franz, could it? If it wasn't snowing, Liv said, would the wind make the same noise? Greta put her ear up to the night as though listening for birdsong and said, not quite. If it weren't snowing, it would sound more like a scream. This is almost, and again she cocked her ear, like someone humming. Roald came barreling out of the darkness, storming into Liv's legs and knocking her down. She laughed and bounced up and tried to tackle the dog, but missed. Roald circled back, and together the two of them ran toward the fish house. Greta watched them. The light in the window wavered, and a moment later she felt another strong breeze, just as the house went dark. We better get back, Greta shouted, but Liv and the dog were already in full stride. In the closet off the mudroom, Greta found the lantern and a box of wooden matches, and she lit it, and they went into what she was now calling the great room. We better sleep down here, Greta said. I'll go get blankets and pillows. You brush your teeth. Before she'd done all the work on the house, the wind had come through it like water through a fishnet. But with the new fireplace and chimney and the addition of the loft, 
With the new windows and roof, the place had been trued, and now the wind was left outside. Greta arranged Liv's pillow and quilt on the big chair and ottoman and spread her own comforter on the sofa. Liv came out of the bathroom and went back to the chair. Will it stay warm enough with just the fire, she said. I think so. Liv reached down for the dog. I can sleep on the floor with Rawl if, if, if I get cold. He would love that. Greta smiled at her daughter's easiness. She hadn't seen much of it lately. Liv was only 11 years old, 11 going on 18. All of the mood swings and surliness, the back talk and pitting herself against the world, the unexplained tears and desperate hugs. Of course, Greta felt responsible for all of it, all the going back and forth between here and Minneapolis, between her and Franz, and now Franz spending so much time in Norway. I'll be up working for a while, Greta said. I'll keep the fire going. Maybe the power will come back on, too. Are you still writing the family story, Liv said. Greta walked over to her and spread her quilt and pushed her bangs up off her face and kissed her forehead. I'm almost done. Is it a true story, Mom? Sort of. Are people happy? Greta smiled. Are you okay, sweet pea? Liv rubbed her eyes and looked like she was about to sulk. Instead, she said, it's tomorrow we go home, right? And the day after tomorrow we go see Dad? That's right. Liv yawned deeply, and when she, her eyes opened again, they caught the light from the fire. I can't wait to see Dad. He's excited to see you, too. Why is he there so much? Greta brought the quilt up and tucked Liv in. I think you should talk to him about that when you see him. Liv yawned again. I love you, kiddo, Greta said. Liv rolled on her side, facing the fire. I love you back. I'll be over at my desk. Sleep tight. But Liv didn't say anything. Her eyes fluttered and closed. Roald's paws twitched. The fire cracked again, and Greta took the lantern to her desk. She'd built it, too. On a day last fall, she'd gone up to an old farm on County Road 7. The unmoored barn had slipped from its foundation what looked like decades earlier and appeared ready to collapse altogether. The man who owned it assured her it was safe to go inside, so they did. There was a mountain of weathered pine clapboard siding stacked in the haymow, the same stuff that covered the fish house, the barn having been built in the same decade. It was a kind of miracle. Off to the side, she spied a workbench, the top of which was a chunk of white pine four inches thick and 30 square feet. When she inquired of it, the man said, take it all, please, it'll be less to burn. Together, they loaded all the wood onto the trailer behind her truck. On a warm day in October, after the loft had been sided, she stood outside and sanded and planed and varnished the top of the workbench. She built legs from cedar posts, and now it sat in the northeast corner up against a window. Greta looked around the fish house at everything else she'd done. The fireplace, that was her favorite part of the renovation. She and the kids had picked the rocks from the river up by her father's house. The fireplace covered a third of the wall opposite the kitchen. She'd had the hearth and flue installed, but did the stonework herself, straight up to the tip of the chimney. It had taken two solid weeks of backbreaking toil, but all that stone and mortar work had been her best therapy. It still unsettled her to be here without the creaks and moans, especially on a howling wind like this. She cupped her hands around her eyes and peered out the window. The snow blew toward the lake. Liv was right. 
Without the lake, without the waves, the wind in all its fierceness seemed almost muted. That was it. Her mother used to call a north wind a quieting wind because it blew the water away from shore. God, how she missed her mother. She supposed it was thanks to the many things she'd learned from her that she was able to remodel the fish house, remodel it and be strong enough to live here, strong enough to have changed everything in her life, strong enough to have found him and to have insisted on him despite the long odds against them. He'd also spoken of the northern wind and the last letter he'd sent, he'd written that she should think of it as a gift from him, that he'd send the breath of Boreas when he missed her most, up and over the pole and on down to her. He wrote things like that. And he'd sent her things, too, a stone picked from the field above Hammerfest, a bronze lighthouse figurine small enough to be worn as a charm on a necklace, a, a felt hat with a floppy brim, a fountain pen, and most recently, this slight book in his translation of it, his penmanship so fine and precise, it could have been typeset. The original book was a leather-bound thing with a polar bear from the shoulders up, its forepaws raised before its snarling face embosed beneath the title, The Polar Bear and the Northernmost Night. Fifty-four pages telling of a fortnight in her great-great-great-grandfather's life, published by some man named Marius Granerud in Tromsø, Norway, in the year 1898. She'd already read it twice, staggered first by the scariness of the tale, and second by something she could only describe as a kind of haunted feeling, that her family, as far back as it was known to her, had been suffering the cold and snow of this world as though those were the conditions of their natural and only habitat. And that the stories of her father's and grandfather's bears should likewise have their provenance, well, it helped her to believe in the other work she was doing. It came again, the quieting wind, spoken of first by her mother, then by her daughter on this night, and now sent by him. She felt the fish house heavy behind her. She thought of the boats that had been built in here, first her great-grandfather's great fishing boat, then her grandfather's and father's canoes. They had all made their great discoveries on those boats. She knew the stories. Her father had told them, Barrett Lavig had told them a long time ago. They were as much a part of her as her own daughter now sleeping peacefully across the room. And what would Greta do now that the old place was fitted out for her? Why, she would start over again. She sat down and put the lantern off to the side of her desk. She waited for the wind to come over the house one more time, imagined him, sent a thought back to him that she missed him too and that she would see him soon and picked up the fountain pen. Thank you. It's so fun to read that brand new stuff. Thanks for indulging me. So, so that's the beginning of the new book. And what it does is it goes back and forth between Norway in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And now with Greta um, telling this story. And it becomes a complicated sort of metafictional account of what's true and what's not true and what is she making up and what is what is true to the record. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Peter Guy and his work. 
In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member noting that Guy made the house a character in his most recent novel. How did that come about? I'm sort of always looking for a new house to buy. And I recently was on Zillow and I saw a house in North Minneapolis. And it was the house that my best childhood friend lived in, which was right across the street from the house that I grew up in. And so naturally I clicked on it. And you know, this is something mindless that I do while I'm, you know, waiting for the coffee to brew or something. But I was clicking through it and thinking, oh, that's where they used to put the Christmas tree. And that's where, you know, he always put ketchup on his macaroni and cheese. And that's where we played G.I. Joe dolls. And then there was a shot from the front porch and it showed the house that I grew up in. And so then, of course, I'm just down memory lane with that. And it's not the house per se, but the people that you live with in the house and the people that you play with in the house and the things that you learn in the house. And I was just gone for the better part of that whole morning thinking about it. And I think that that's, I've definitely tried to make that part of the story of these books, you know, the, the, the lives that they have and the conversations that they have about those lives. Most of it takes place over a cup of coffee at the kitchen table, as so much life does. This question comes from an audience member wondering how the loss of Peter Guy's mother has played into his writing. I, I've been, um, and I'm not just saying this because my father is here, but I've been very lucky in life to have parents who took wonderful care of me and taught me all about being a good person. Uh, if I have done bad things in my life, it's not all necessarily his fault. <laughs> um, and I had a mother, it's so funny that you asked this, not funny I guess, but I was just, I was at a book club this afternoon meeting with a group of, of readers and they were asking about that same thing and I, one of the things that I said was, I think that when you have a mother who takes terrific care of you and who loves you unconditionally and regardless of the stupid things you do, you know, your whole life. Um, the, for me at least, I ended up taking her for granted. I lost my mother, I don't know what it was, six or seven years ago now. And it was, of course, a horrible thing, and I miss her every day. Um, but when she passed away, I felt all of a sudden, and for the first time, like I had a bunch of things that I wanted to say to her that I would never be able to say to her. And I suppose a lot of people feel that way, but I was thinking about it, and I think the reason that I hadn't talked to her about it was because that I just took her for granted and her exceptionalness for granted. And, you know, what a horrible thing to, to think back constantly about the things that you would like to say to your mother that you never got to say as an adult. And I told my mom I loved her all the time. I gave her a hug and a kiss every time I saw her. We had a great time. But we rarely sat down and, you know, it, where, and where I could say, thank you. You know, thank you for being a terrific mom. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for all the things that she, she deserved thanks for. And, you know, most of my, you know, my first couple of books anyway, were largely about fathers and sons. We can talk about that after. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My dad was also great, still is. Um, 
But I think that one of the reasons that I've started writing more and more about mothers, I mean, Greta is obsessed with her mother who, who passed away and who seemed to know things about her that Greta herself didn't even know. And I think part of that is me coming to terms sort of finally with, with the passing of my own, my own mother. But I'll say this also, that they're stories, right? They're just, they're made up. It's all lies. Uh, none of it, most of it, a lot of it never happened. And that's my job as a novelist, to make stuff up and to tell stories and, to, and they're all lies. Um, and so the strained father-son relationships in my stories aren't based, I mean, sh you know, of course my father and I have had tense times. Um, he wasn't a very good dad when I was in high school. I knew a lot more than he did <laughs> then. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, like it's all, it's, it's and of course, the stories are informed by the experience that I have, but they're not, it's not based on relationship, the relationships that I have, per se. Um, and, and that's my job as a novelist. So if I were to write a family history, it would be a different job, but now my job is to, to tell stories that make the best use of the characters that I've created. This question is about the moment Harry and his friend decide to go to the newspaper in Guy's latest novel. I've had a long and complicated relationship with Harry, longer and more complicated than many of the other characters in the book. And one of the reasons that I think that that's true is because Harry has done a lot of things in his life that I would never dream of doing. He's put his kid in a position that I would never dream of putting my children in. Um, but it's exactly for that reason that I find him intriguing and that I find his story to be certainly interesting enough for me to tell. And one of the things that happens when you write a novel, I mean, a lot of things happen, but one of the things that inevitably happens and that you have to contend with on, an, on a daily or even hourly basis is that a, a character or a situation is working towards and finally comes to a moment. And at that moment, one of two or three or four or 142 different things can happen. And you have to make those choices every step of the way. Sometimes it happens three times in a paragraph. Sometimes it happens five times in a conversation. And Harry and how he's dealt with the information that he has and the anger that he feels towards Charlie Oz was one of those moments where there were 142 choices and I pursued a lot of those choices each step of the way. That is, uh, until they got into the wilderness and then it became a, then it almost wrote itself. Um, and so I, I couldn't say what it is that guided the decision, the decisions that I made to write that, except that it felt true and honest to his character. This audience member asks why Peter Guy decided to set his stories in northern Minnesota. Well, the story of Safe from the Sea, um, which I mentioned taking 10 years to, to write, I often joke that I spent the first five years writing the first 700 pages, and then the next five years eliminating 500 of those pages. And one of the reasons that that's true is that the only thing I knew about the story at the outset was that I wanted it to be on the North Shore. I had no characters, no story, no t epic in time, no nothing. I only knew that I wanted to write about this place. 
which has been so important to me from the time I was, you know, first making memories. You know, it's we we weren't much for going to Disneyland. We went up north. We went to the Boundy Waters. We stayed in cabins or camped on the North Shore or in state parks. And I think that my early um, love of that place, and I do remember just loving it and feeling awestruck by it as a young boy, informed my decision to want to write about it. Like most novelists I have, you know, I had, I guess I still, still have them, I haven't thrown them away, a couple of failed novels um, at the bottom of my desk drawer. And one of the reasons that they were failed novels is because I was writing about places and people that I had no idea who they were. You know, I took one summer trip to Europe and thought I could write about a family in the south of Spain, you know? <laughs> not, not having ever met a Spanish person except <laughs> the guy that sold me this, this cerveza, cerveza. Um, and so, so when, I, when those novels failed, I, I just thought, okay, this isn't working. I don't know why it's not working, but what are some things that you could change? And the first thing I thought of was, well, why don't you write about a place that you know? And so I thought about writing about home, which is Minneapolis, but I wasn't necessarily inspired by home, and I think that that happens to some people. Not that I don't love Minneapolis, I do love Minneapolis, and I don't ever want to live anywhere else, um, but I, you know, it's, my, it's where I have my daily grind and have for all of my life, and so there's something not inspirational about it. Then I thought about northern Minnesota and the North Shore especially. And I'm really, frankly, glad that I made that choice because for, for all sorts of reasons, but for all the times that I've been there, and who knows, maybe I've spent parts of 500 days in northern Minnesota or something like that. You rarely, if ever, see the same thing twice. The weather or the seasons or the lake itself or the woods themselves or the animals or the people doing ridiculous things, any of those things and as a fiction as a writer of fiction what more could you ask for of of a locale except that you have this majestic beautiful mysterious place and so i get to keep writing about it our next question is about the passage guy read where rebecca asked harry who are you what was the inspiration for writing that moment well i think that by the time rebecca is asking him that she's pretty much gone and Rebecca, of all the characters in these books, Rebecca is the one I'm most sympathetic toward. Um, she's had the hardest life by far, for all of the hard lives, she's had the hardest life. And the reason that she's had the hardest life, I think, is because she's literally ever only known love one time, and that was to someone that she shouldn't have been in love with in the way that she was, and she had to abandon it. And so imagine, Think about, think about you know, the first time that you fell in love or the most recent time that you fell in love and that feeling of going headlong. And you don't know what the hell is happening. You only know that you have all the world's most enormous feelings. And the one time that that was presented to her, the one time that she could have had that, she had to contend with love and just had no idea how to do it. And gave it up. And the consequence of that is that, I don't know, I think I'd go crazy too if I never felt loved or if I never had love or if I had it once and blew it miserably. And that's what she's contending with. And so she's, you know, she 
you know, there's a, she has a facade or something, I imagine, where she can conduct herself and she has manners and she is intelligent and she takes care of herself, you know, to all outward appearances, but she's also gone. She's absolutely gone. And she, of course, knows who's sitting there. She stands at the window all day watching him, but she doesn't know how to talk to him. She doesn't know how to, how to love even her own son. So what a sad story, huh? Yeah. This question is about the pom-pom on Harry's hat. What was the inspiration behind that? Well, now you're going to get the, the full, like, this is how a novelist's mind works. So I'll, I won't do the whole thing because it just would take the rest of the night. But one of the, the, one of the things that I was first um, excited about was the fact that Harry, in my early conjuring of him, was a guy who really admired and revered the Voyagers, right? He sings these silly songs, he wears his red hat around all the time, he's drawn the maps, and whatever that said, I didn't really care, except that I wanted him to be that guy. And so when I was thinking about ways to kill him, one of the fun things you get to do um, as a novelist is like murder people or kill them, um, what would be a way that he would go? And I don't know, um, I don't know what the consensus was at the book club, but I have my own theories about how he's gone and what has happened to him. And certainly in Harry's mind, he had a plan. And so he has clipped the pom-pom from the top of his hat, his red hat like all the Voyagers wore, if you go up to the National Monument in Grand Portage and look at the posters, or the posters, the paintings all over the walls, you'll see that winter, spring, summer, or fall, the Voyagers always had their red hats on. And they wore them, and it was their trademark look. Uh, and he has, Harry has clipped that off and replaced it with something that's going to help his hat float. And that's really all there is to it. I won't say what he's done because I think it's open to interpretation and far be it for me to spoil another person's interpretation. But it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. I had to, I had to kill him. I had to find a way to kill him. And this was going to be proof of his death. This audience member inquires about the symbolism of the bear in Guy's novel. In my own experience, bears are a part of life in northern Minnesota, for sure. I've seen a few of them. Um, my f most recently, I was jogging up at Lutzen on a summer day, this is a few years ago, and running on the, one of the trails just off of the ski area at like 6 o'clock in the morning or something, and down this long straightaway, you know, I haven't seen anyone for a half an hour, and this bear comes out, sits down in the middle from here to the, well, probably twice as far as from here to the wall. And I was startled, of course, and scared and found it exhilarating. And, um, you know, when that happens, it's, it's meaningful for all the reasons that are obvious. Um, I think that beyond that, I mean, I'm sure that if I were my 22-year-old English major self, I could write a hell of a paper about why the bears are important. But I don't know that it's that I would be doing any readers any favors to say why the bearskin, except that it's a kind of a, you know, I mean, it's a, it, 
I, I guess I guess I would go so far as to say it's a symbol of the wilderness and the fierceness of the wilderness and the danger of the wilderness, even though black bears aren't dangerous necessarily. Um, but I'll tell you what, there's a polar bear in the new book that I'm working on that is dangerous <laughs> and that does some real damage and is just sort of, um, you know, a, a harbinger for the bears that the, that the Ides will later encounter. And I, you know, those things, I said, you come up to a moment and you have several choices to make. He could have just as easily, you know, shot and killed a moose or, you know, I guess a, a wolf or something like that. But he didn't, I picked, a, I picked a bear. I love bears. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Peter Guy's writing process is like. Does he do a lot of planning and research before sitting down to write a novel? Oh, I plan all the time, but then I start looking on Zillow and all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden it's noon and it's time for lunch. <laughs> Baseball season's starting soon. No, I'm being flip. I, I try to write all the time. I, and by that I mean, I, I'm doing a lot of driving lately because I'm visiting a lot of libraries in outstate Minnesota and I have a notebook right next to me. Um, which sounds dangerous, I guess it, I guess it is, but a, a place to jot notes. And really, it's just a time to think, you know. Mo most of writing is thinking. At least for me, that's true. And so, uh, you know, when I'm going to bed at night, this will sound weird, but I think half of my best ideas of all time have come in the shower. And so I have a notebook by the shower. Um, and, and I just work all the time. Now, of course, it takes dedicated time at the desk, and you know you have to actually be typing and writing the story. It can't just be one idea after another. But part of the process, and probably for me, the, if not the hardest, the most time-consuming part of the process is the generation of those ideas. And so typically what I do is I imagine, okay, so this has happened, and this has happened, and now this needs to happen. What does this look like? And then it's a, you know it starts with a list, and then you know each list gets a you know it's like a bullet points or something like an outline of sorts. And this sounds like I have a very tidy way of doing this. It's usually like on a bar napkin and on a post-it note and on the back of you know a brochure at wherever I happen to be visiting. Um, but then it begins to take shape, um, and and then and then it's a matter of sitting down. Um, and I do. I mean, it's kind of, it's mostly what I do. I teach and I write and I take care of my kids. And then when the Olympics come along every four years, I watch ski jumping on the Olympics. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Rum River event with Peter Guy. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with William Kent Kruger at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. William Kent Kruger is best known for his award-winning Cork O'Connor series, set in Minnesota's forested and isolated Arrowhead region. Sulphur Springs, the 16th and latest installment, offers readers a departure. Kruger's dogged protagonist travels to Arizona and finds himself embroiled with the area's dangerous drug cartels. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too.
Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.